So have you ever wondered why the Bible is so confusing to understand? Or why Genesis is at the beginning and Revelation is at the end? You ever been curious as to why there's a New Testament and an Old Testament? Or what does that even mean? Well, I'm sure these are all questions that some of us have all asked at some point. So that's what Bible school is all about. We're going to go through the Bible and we're going to talk about the semantics of the why, the how, and most importantly, the who. If you'll ride this out with me, we're going to go cover to cover through the Bible and dig deep and see the mysteries that God has revealed to us through this beautiful love letter that he calls his word. You've just tuned in to Bible School with Reverend Kojo. Welcome to Bible School. Um, I'm, I'm excited about the word today. We're, at, we're actually in the last of the seven letters to the seven churches. And um, y'all, it's going to be heavy today. <laughs> I think we got a uh, fairly good time last time. We talked about Philadelphia and it, it wasn't really condemnatory. Um, I did admonish you to, um, to take a moment and, and really do some, some introspective looking to see if you belong to that church, because if you don't belong to that church, you need to find you some membership <laughs> in that church and get some characteristics of Philadelphia. Well, all that good stuff we said about Philadelphia, all of that goes out the window tonight. Um, and every, every, every good thing that we felt about Philadelphia, I don't need you feeling that about Laodicea. Um, and so what we're going to do, as usual, um, I want you to remember that there are four levels of meaning to each of these letters. Um, there's a local meaning, there's an admonitory meaning, um, there is a personal meaning, and there's a prophetic meaning. Um, and, and so we're going to, you know, of course, as we always do, we're going to walk through this thing verse by verse and, and, and pull out the semantics. I'm really excited, less about tonight, but more excited about next week as we get to tie them together. Um, tonight, actually, this, this particular church makes me sad. And as we walk through it, I think it'll it'll become very evident why this church makes me sad. Um, but as you know, I as I believe, I believe that I've got to give you the word um, because the anointing is indeed on the word, and that knowledge is power. We know the word says, "My people perish because they lack knowledge." And if you're not knowledgeable about what God has said about His people and about His churches, you have no opportunity to change. Now, yes, you do need to read the Word. And I hope that you read these verses before you get on here. If not, pull out your Bible and follow along with me. Um, be like those Berean Jews in Acts, y'all. Um, don't take what I say for, for granted. Um, uh, do, do, do your due diligence. Read, read the Word. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you straight because I'm going to be held accountable uh, by God. But you need, you're also going to be held accountable for what you believe and what you do. So be, be very careful. Today we're in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, we're going to read from verses 14 to verses 22. Um, like I said, this is the last of the seven churches. And, and uh, this is actually the last of that second section of Revelation. I told you that Revelation is like one of the only books that gives us a clear divine outline. Now, I believe that all of the books of the Bible, uh, you know, there are 66 chapters written by 40 authors over thousands of years, and that we have one clear message system uh, that is the Bible. But what what is unique about Revelation in, in, in chapter 1, he gave us uh, somewhat of an outline of how um, it was ordered, and we know that chapter 1, what explained what had happened, 
uh, chapters two and three, which is that second section, uh, was talking about the current. And we know metatauta, that word that used, and the things that are to come is, is going to be the next several chapters, the rest of the book of Revelation. And so, y'all, we're getting into some heavy stuff. Like, But like I've been saying, I want you to keep in mind that the most relevant to you as the church is two and three, chapters two and three. Um, if there's anything you want to hang your hat on, make sure that you are clean and clear, all that good stuff you need to be searching in chapter two and three. Now, when we get to chapter four, our vantage point is going to change. Uh, praise God. Uh, <clears throat> and we won't be looking from earth anymore. We'll be looking from heaven. And I thank God for that. But let's go ahead and dive into the scripture. Verse 14, I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then I'll give you a little bit of history, and then we'll come back and dissect the, the verses and, and do all that good stuff. All right, here we go. Verse 14, he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are the wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they eat with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. All right. Laodicea. So Laodicea is south of Philadelphia, um, which is really ironic, you know, north and south, heaven, hell. Um, that's that, that's me being a little facetious, but south of Philadelphia, uh, it's a twin city to Hierapolis. And here's the irony here. Now, you know, they're, they, they're being admonished for being lukewarm and he's, he's fussing about them being lukewarm, but the, in, in the physical sense, uh, their twin city is Hierapolis and is known for hot springs. And Laodicea didn't have a water source. And so from Hierapolis, they would transport the water. Now, this is extremely hot water that comes from the earth. If you're not familiar with a hot spring, the way that it works is the water boils down below, far down below the surface. And when it reaches a boiling point, it's so hot and the pressure and the steam has built up so hard, heavy that it breaks the surface of the ground and shoots directly straight up. And so hot springs are like, they create jacuzzi hot water or hot water that's hotter than that. Um, and and, it, and it's, 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 it's not one of those things that's bearable. It's, it's incredibly hot, it's, but it's useful for a number of things, right? So, but they transported the water to Laodicea. This is not the day of the 18-wheeler. This is not the day uh, of having, having cars that go 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. No, they're traveling by donkey and they're traveling by foot. So when they're transporting this hot water to Laodicea, when the water arrives, it's lukewarm. Now, the city that's north of Laodicea, Laodicea is known for cold water. 
And they transported this water. And we're talking about freezing cold water, water that is incredibly cold, water that could chill your bones. You know, that perfect water that you drink on on a a 90 degree day here in Alabama. You know, when you want your water so cold that it kind of gives you a brain freeze a a little bit, but it's so hot outside that you just thank God that you've got cold water. And as it goes down your body and it goes as it goes down your throat, it kind of illuminates everything on the inside of you because your body's so hot. It's just it's one of those wonderful experiences. You know, the city north of it had this cold water and they transported water to Laodicea. But by the time that they arrived to Laodicea, the water <laughs> was lukewarm. And there's not a whole lot you can do with lukewarm water. Sure, you can bathe with it, but it's not the best bath. Sure, you can use it to prepare these things that can hydrate you, but it's not really useful in the ways that, that, that these, this hot water and this cold water was, Okay. Now, Laodicea also was not a place that was in location to be military defensible. It's surrounded by all of these things. It does not really own a cliff. It's not really in a situation that it has a military advantage. So the people who lived there and the politicians that ruled the area became master negotiators, and they became very good at this idea called compromise. And since these folks were so good at compromise, they really didn't take sides. They were like a Switzerland. They didn't really take sides when chaos began to take over in the world. If, 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 the, two con- if, if the north and the south of them were at war, they were mutual. They, they were neutral. They didn't, they didn't get in these issues, and so they were lukewarm yet again in another portion of themselves. <clears throat> now, uh, they were a planet by Acrippus who was thought to be the son of Philemon. Now, what's interesting is Paul actually writes a letter to, to, to Acrophus, um, who is the son of Philemon, and he, he's urging him to be more diligent in ministry because it seems, though, that Acrophus is, is, um, is lukewarm toward his ministry. Oh, he'll preach, but he really doesn't care how the people live. Oh, he'll go and he'll do this, but if they don't get it, oh, well. And if, if, if they get the word on Sunday, but they live like hell during the week, it didn't matter. And so Paul was at Monus to send a letter to a cripple. Archippus, I apologize. Now, what's interesting <laughs> is if Archippus, you know, Philemon uh, right wrote a book in the Bible, but if Archippus is believed to have planted Laodicea, it makes perfect sense in this admonishment on a physical, a mental, and a spiritual level on what Jesus is saying here in the scripture. And like I said, we're going to get back to, to, um, to run it back. And then what's even crazier to me is that in Laodicea, they were made famous for the black sheep that they raised. They were made famous for the black sheep and, and the, the wool that it created was sold all over the world. It was the thing that made them uh, rich. It was a thing that made them popular. And, <laughs> and, 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 and it's, it's, it's incredibly interesting to me because you know, the black sheep of the family is not something that they're proud of, but in Laodicea, they're proud of their black sheep. And then another thing is that they were famous. They had a famous school of medicine. Um, and, you know, he talks about the eye solve that he, he would admonish them to buy the solve from him so that they'd be able to really see because they were blinded. Um, and I just I, 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 I when I look at this scripture and then you begin to see the background of what happened in Laodicea in the time that this letter was written. Jesus is is something else because not only does he he call them out literally and phys- physically for the things that they are but it, it seems as though that their physical state their economic state their political state match their spiritual state 
And if that be the case, I think as we move through this and we begin to compare this to the world that we live in, to the country, to the city, to the states that we live in, that it's, it's one of those things that kind of hits you where you are. Because sometimes I think we're, we're, we're positioned in a place where we think that we are perfect, that we've got it going on according to what we've got surround, what we're surrounded by. Because the Laodiceans thought they had it going on, and we're going to see that in Scripture just in a moment. They really, really thought they had it going on. They, they could be the equivalent of what we thought of a, of, a, of a United States or Switzerland, and I know that's two, two polar opposites, but of a United States or Switzerland, they like they had, had it going on. You know, Switzerland has these high, high um everybody's happy and healthy and all of this good stuff. In the United States, you know, we're just kind of arrogant. Um, we used to have number one stuff. We don't really have that many number ones that are, that are worth mentioning. But, but they really thought that they had it going on, and, and, and Jesus seems to disagree. All right, back to the scripture. <clears throat> verse 14, let's, 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 let's break it down verse by verse. Verse 14, and the angel of the church of the Laodiceans right now. Laos, Laodicea. So Laos, that root word means laity or the people. Um, um, what Laodicea actually means is that it's a people-led government, which, you know, as Americans, a people-led government is not bad. Actually, historically and economically, we see that the strongest governments that are the most powerful are people-led governments. They, when the people have the power, the country has the most power to effect the most change. It has the most power to affect the most uh, uh, mental and spiritual change ever because the people and the consensus of the people, they're not being ruled by, by the people. And it's interesting that that root word, laos, is, is laity because in in just a little bit, we're going to talk about the Nicolaitans, and that has the same root word laity, but it means subduers of the laity. And I'll be sure to pull that out when we get to that part in the scripture in just a couple of weeks. But in Laodicea, they are people led. Now, that's wonderful in church. I mean, no, that's wonderful in government, but it's awful in church because in church we should be God led. <clears throat> Not, not necessarily pastor-led. I know some people think that the pastor is the end-all, be-all, but I'm here to tell you that's not the case. God is the end-all, be-all. And so in church, it shouldn't be about what the people think. Now, let's look, let's look at our local churches and let's look at our local spiritual movements that we begin to try to bend what the word of God has said. We begin to change the, what, the way that it has always worked uh, because the people at large believe a thing. We sit down and have meetings about what the Bible really meant about something. And, and the Greek and the Hebrew made it clear and the English translators came in and, and hopefully they got it right this time. Uh, but we want to meet and say, well, are we going to really enforce this in our churches? How are we going to do that? And, and so it's, it's like a call. It's Laodicea is people led and the church, that's the problem here, is people led. Now we, I know you're probably thinking, well, well, then how are you supposed to make it work? You're supposed to make the word of God because in the beginning there was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. Um, and, and, and so if we make the word, the chief authority, then the church is God led. If the church is God led and he's at the helm and he's at the center, there is no mistake that we can make. But when it becomes about us and my platform, when it comes, it becomes about me and becoming bigger than life. When it becomes about what we want as a collective and not what God has asked of his people because he knows all. Because we think that as a collective, if the whole group must agree with it, it must be right. 
And that's not always the case. All right, let's keep going. This is what, how he describes himself. He says, these things says the amen, the faithful, and the true witness. Now, this occurs only twice in the Bible, not applying that Jesus was created, right? Um, because, uh, let's see. Um, so, well, let me break it down like this. So he's the amen. We know amen means that so be it, it is done, it is finished, uh, that, that is, he's, he's firm. So he's the amen, he's the faithful and true witness. So he's establishing here that because we know John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, that, that what he has said is not meant to be amended. What he has decreed and he has declared over his people, what he has made known, uh, his rule, his rule, his rulership, um, is not meant to be contorted or to be changed. Um, and so he's establishing, as he has in every single letter, who he is according to you. Now, that doesn't negate who he was in Philadelphia. He's still the same God, but he's having to describe himself and his character based on the way that these folks are behaving. Now, he, he then he says he's the beginning of the creation of God. Now, I don't want you to confuse that with thinking that Jesus was created or Jesus is not God, that Jesus is, you know, some other being because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This, this, this statement that he is the beginning of the creation of God occurs t only twice in the Bible. And, and like I said, it, it, it doesn't imply that Jesus was created, but it is a statement of rank and honor. Okay. It's, it's a statement that says that he was in the beginning and in the beginning, he has not changed that he's, he's existed as generations have passed away. That as, as, as this government has come and they've had this ideology and then as, as the, the BC tides turn and Christ walked the earth, he was still the same God that he was in the beginning. And he was the same God that he was when, um, when the flood happened with Noah, he was the same God who took Enoch. He was the same God who helped Moses deliver, who delivered the children out of Israel. He was the same God when there was a mute, when he went mute on the people, he was the same God when John the Baptist was born. And he was the same God when, um, at, for these last 2000 years, since he's, since he's, since he's, uh, he's been gone. And since he's left the Holy Spirit here, he's establishing that his rank and his honor has stayed the same since the very beginning. And he's he's using that beginning not to set a to set a time, because, but but to try to relate to us um, who he is and what he is. You know, because in our minds, we are people who are on a time limit. We're only going to be here for a certain amount of time. And so to relate to us, he uses this statement. He's the beginning of the creation of God. And, and like I said, that does not imply that God was created. It implies that he's existed since the beginning of this creation that we know and um, are familiar with. So, all right. So here we here we go. Now, when he said he was the primary, he was the beginning of the creation of God. And I'm going to sit here with a minute because there's a little bit. 
the first thing when we start thinking about Laodicea, because we know the issue in Laodicea is lukewarmness, the primary heresy, let's think about that of our day, the primary heresy. And now this heresy everywhere, but the primary heresy of our day is evolution, because if we can, if, if Satan, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a master of confusion. If Satan can convince you that there was no creation, he can he can negate the prowess and the the uh, creativity and the uh, distinction and the rank and the majesty of God, because God, that's one of, that's the crowning achievement. Well, we were the crowning achievement, but that the fact that he creates this atmosphere that mirrors itself and that is so detailed, um, but to create this heresy of evolution, um, is, is insanity. Now, second Peter three, four, it uses this verse and it kind of, this, it already disproves evolution before evolution ever appears on earth, right? Before, before the scientists become up with this theory to try to disprove Christ. Now, before we even delve into this, I do want you to understand. And because I have said this over and over time, I believe that all sound science points back to the word. Um, and good meaning scientists who at one time believed that evolution is how we, we, we came about and that we came from primates and all of that chaos and all of that foolery. Um, those same scientists, many of them believe that there has to be a God. Now, they may not believe in the God that we believe in or believe in the deity that we believe in or believe that he appears and, and that he speaks or that the Bible is the, is the finite, final word of God or, or any of that. But they have all, not all, but most come to this agreement that there has to be some kind of um, God because there's too much detail in the universe. There's no way that there could have been a big bang or that that big bang was caused by a big God. Um, <laughs> and so when we, we look at this second Peter, second Peter, second Peter, um, second Peter, uh, chapter three, verse four, we find these words. He say, they will say, where is this coming? He promised Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has uh, since the creation. Now, because we know we said that the largest heresy is, is evolution, in Second Peter, he's already dealt with that there would be a heresy of evolution or that there would be a heresy of uniform, um, uniformitism. And with all that, all that means is that people say, well, the earth just is going to keep going and going, and it doesn't matter what we do here because life is just going to keep going, um, and there is no divine intervention, and if you believe that there's divine intervention, you're crazy, all of that stuff. He's already disproving that because that's they, they, they came with this argument in Second Peter 4, um, <laughs> and and as we dig as we dig into that, and we're gonna we're gonna keep reading in Second Peter just a second. Um, I want you to think about this first. Think about the moon. Look, think about the moon. The moon is missing pieces of itself. There are craters all in it, and there's no wind on the moon. And so what happens is it stays put. You know, on the earth, if we go step on something, over time, things erode. Well, there, there is no wind on the moon. There is no water on the moon. And since there, there, there are none of these things, we know um, that once something takes place, that it stays. Well, there are craters, craters, there are craters, proof that things have happened and it hasn't all stayed the same. And, and that would lead us to believe that there have been a, a number of things that have happened over the ages that would say that business as usual is not, has not been the state of the universe forever. 
which would incline me to believe, and I already know for a fact there's a God, but it would incline me to believe that there is divine interaction on earth. But we're still in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, verse 4 is what I read to you. He said, they will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But verse 5 says, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so he already he already knew that before these words were penned, that there was going to have to be a rebuttal for them and that the church at Laodicea or the church or the world would try to disprove the deity of God, even though it's been understood for ages and ages how he's worked it out. And so when we start to look at God being the beginning of the creation of God, he's establishing that he is God that he's been God and he's going to continue to be God. He's disproving any arguments that you could have about uniformitism, about create, about anything that's contrary to creationism or his deity. All right. Verse 15, we see familiar words. He says, I know your works. Um, we know that usually he comes in this thing and he starts telling you the good stuff. You know, he's butting, butting you up before he has to chastise you. Um, but he doesn't do that. He has nothing good to say here in Laodicea. Uh, which is a little bit disturbing because he had good stuff to say in five of the other seven letters. And in Laodicea, he, he didn't have anything good to say. Um, and I think that says a lot about the state of the hearts of these people and how upset he is with them. But verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. And so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Then he says, verse 17, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, guys, the issue here, obviously, is that, and, and, and I'm going to say this understanding that I'm an American, but the issue here is that they want it all. The issue here is that they want it all. The issue here is that, you know, they say, okay, I believe in Jesus, but they also want to say, well, I put it in the universe. They say, oh, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but they also want to go chant like the Buddhists. Or they say, oh, well, I was raised Christian, but I don't go to church and uh, I do everything the Bible doesn't say, but uh, God will save my soul. And it's kind of like this movement that happens some like some years ago where a prominent minister changed his theology and was started preaching inclusion. Um, and I'm going to put you like this. I like diversity and inclusion in, in most parts of my life in, in government. Great. In school. Great. But see, when we preach inclusion and that's not what God has said, God says that it's available to anybody. Salvation is available to anybody, but there are things that you have to do in order to get salvation, like confession and belief. But, you know, there was a prominent preacher. He was thousands and thousands of people were coming to hear him preach. And he started to preach that everybody's going to heaven. Nobody's going to hell. And the Bible simply doesn't say that. Silly doesn't say that. 
Um, and but but it, it, what it does is it creates a lukewarm church. It creates a church that's not on fire for God. It creates a church who is not who is not interested in walking this thing out. Because I'm going to be real with you, it is hard to be a Christian. The pursuit of holiness is hard. It is difficult. Righteousness was made on the cross, but holiness is a constant pursuit. Holiness is denying your flesh. Holiness is seeing somebody that you like and knowing because you're not married, you can't touch that. Holiness is understanding that gluttony is not okay. And I know that that hurts some people who are very well-meaning Christians. Holiness is understanding that there are some places that you can't go, even though you really want to go and you feel like you're strong enough to go. Holiness, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm going to be real with y'all and I'm going to be very transparent for the longest time. Holiness was a word that made me nervous because every time I thought about holiness, I thought about them preachers that was making folks pass out. <laughs> and as a kid, that word scared me. But understanding holiness and understanding righteousness is this desire to be right with God. See, salvation got us to heaven. Salvation got us to heaven. But see, this pursuit of holiness avails us to be able to be able to cultivate those fruits of the spirits that they talk about in Galatians. Holding being the pursuit of holiness, because, you know, I don't I don't know if we'll ever be 100 percent holy. You know, we're not God, but we're supposed to be trying. It's saying no to some things that our body really want to say yes to. It's understanding that even if you are inclined to be a drunk, that you're saying, no, God is worth more. And so, but, but if I were to teach you that we can have it all, oh, just, you know, just confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, but do whatever you want to do. That's what he's upset with. And, and that's scary. And I'm gonna tell you why it's scary because I look around me and I look around me and I look at the Christians that I'm around and the people I'm teaching. And I look around at the country that I'm coming from. And I look at these huge, huge mega churches and I look at all of this stuff. And it's wonderful that you got people, thousands and thousands of people coming in here, but you're not teaching them the whole word. We've made it comfortable. Oh, we don't feed, we don't teach fire and brimstone anymore, but we do teach prosperity. But we don't account for the job deal. No, no, no. We don't we don't want to talk about that because there's there might come a day where you didn't do anything wrong, but God tests you and he takes it all away because he doesn't have to give you an explanation. And we don't know how to preach that and we don't know how to package that into our prosperity gospel. So we don't talk about it or we only package it into this thing. And we try to say that suffering only lasts sometimes. But here's the reality is that we talked about this church at Smyrna where he didn't give them a promise that they were going to overcome it. He said, just hang in there. And so how do we teach that to people who are, who are, who are persistently poor? How do we teach that to people who are hurting and, and, and are, are, are despondent because God doesn't promise us that we're going to be rich. He gives us the ability to get wealth. Yes, he does. But he doesn't. Everybody's not going to get rich. That's not everybody's lot. He doesn't promise everybody that they're going to get the model body. <laughs> he doesn't promise everybody's not going to be the rocket science and everybody's not going to get to walk this out. And everybody has a different purpose. And your purpose might be something that you don't want to do. But how do we teach that? And so we've packaged this, Chris, this gospel or so we call it. 
And we only teach what's comfortable. And that's the problem of the, with the church at Laodicea there, Luke. Warm. You know, and it, 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 it makes me feel bad because some years ago I started a church. And I started the church and we had a 6 p.m. service. Now, we have one now, but we had a 6 p.m. service. But my reasoning at the time for having a 6 p.m. service was because I knew that my patrons were going to be out on Saturday night and they weren't going to church anyway. And so I made a 6 p.m. service because I wanted them to be over their hangover by the time the church hour came. And so I was bowing to the culture. And, and, and then I'm, I'm admitting this. And I thank God for maturity. And we still meet at six, but we meet at six for different reasons. But I bowed at the time for, to the culture and not, and I didn't make the culture bow to my God. That's the problem. That's the problem. And the issue, y'all, is one, one sure barrier to truth is this idea that you already have it. To think that you've got it figured out because you, you got some money. And I think that's one of the dangers of, of who we are and how we live in this in this country, this this, this country that I'm, you know, I'm an American and I'm I've always been an American. And so there is a sense of pride there, at least there has been until this recently to the last couple of years. There's been a sense of pride behind being an American. And when I went and traveled to other countries, I was proud to tell people that I was from the United States because it, it was a point of pride. But, but see, there's a danger in being in that place. There's a danger in having, and I thank God that God has blessed me to be able to be comfortable. I'm grateful for it. But there's also a danger to that because at some point we begin to think that we don't need God. Because we have it all. We have all of these things. You know, we, we drive luxury vehicles. We have big houses. We, we buy property. We, we get our, our fancy $8 cup of coffee. And we go and sit down and eat $30, $40, $50 meals. And so we don't necessarily have a, a need. But I was talking to my grandfather today. And, and you know, my granddaddy's not like a holier-than-thou person at all. At all, at all. But I was talking to my grandfather today, and he was, and I was asking him what was his motivation for succeeding, because he grew up crazy poor. And he told me that his motivation for succeeding was because there were not black men in that day that were able to do anything. He grew up in segregation in Alabama, in Birmingham. Yeah, he grew up when they were bombing churches. Like they grew up, they they my, both of my grandparents, most I think I know both of my mother's parents grew up on Dynamite Hill, the famous Dynamite Hill, where they were bombing lawyers' houses and preachers' houses and and all of the black affluency. They were bombing their homes. And and he said that there were not black men that had opportunity to go and and excel. And so what he did is he, at 16, when he graduated high school, he went off into the military because he was forced to, and he spent many a night crying and, and hurting, but there was a zeal and a zealous that was in him that he had to succeed. See, when we were hurting as people, and maybe I'm only speaking for black people, but, 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 but hear me from where I'm speaking, when we hurt like that, there's a God that you have to lean on to because if you can't lean on that God, if you can't get yourself in a situation, if you, you'll give up. You'll give up. And then when you're giving up and you're giving up, 
you'll, you'll commit suicide or, or you'll, you'll give in to drugs or you'll give in to something and you'll never overcome. And so when we were subdued and we were hurting, when you were the church at Smyrna and you were being, uh, uh, you were suffering and people were messing, messing, messing over you. Or if you were the church at Philadelphia and you were suffering at the hands of the Jews, it was easier to call on the name of Christ to lean and depend on his arms because when you suffered, you needed some hope. You needed some hope for a future. And so you were always looking to what could be and what would be, and you were working, but you were constantly calling on his name because you knew that you couldn't do it in your own might. You had tried to make ends meet and they wouldn't meet, but the only way that you could make them meet was to call on his God. And so it, but in the land of sea in church, that wasn't an issue because they had money. They didn't struggle to make the ends meet. They had points of pride. They were well-dressed people. They had big houses, big, well, they didn't have cars, but if it was today, they had cars and, and, and they had land and, 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 and they weren't in a place where they were in, 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 um, in political instability. And so there was never really moments where they had to call out to God. And so verse 17 is because you say I, you, I am rich and have become wealthy and have no need of nothing and do not know how rich, wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked you are. And it takes me back to looking at people like Jay-Z and at people like Kanye West and at Charlemagne the God. All of these men who have ascended to the heights of celebrity and our millionaires and billionaires who have ascended from poverty. Well, all of these guys were at once impoverished, but are now filthy rich and are calling themselves God. All three of these men refer to themselves in some form or fashion as a God. They see themselves as deities. They have removed the need to, to lift up the name Christ or to depend on him because they believe it was themselves who pulled themselves out up by the bootstraps and out of the, 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 uh, out of, of the impoverished state that they were in, they look at their hustle and they didn't realize that it was faith and works working together. And what's crazy to me, and, and I can't speak on Charlotte and the God, but I know that Jay-Z and, um, and Kanye West at some point believed in Christ, but at some point had this moment where they thought that they were God and started telling people that they should call them Jehovah. Or, 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 or Jesus or, or, or all of this chaos and this craziness that they have, they have concocted. And because they have become rich and they've lost sight. And like the verse says, but they have no clue that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. How, how sad is that? Wretched. And but you know, and that takes me to this place. I was talking to a young man this week who was telling me about his lifestyle. And and his lifestyle, he calls it uh, uh polyamory. And so he he dates all these people, um, and he has a use for all these people and 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 he can't hear righteousness. He he he's not interested in organized religion, like he told me. And unfortunately. Like in Romans 1, where he says he, threw the, he turned them over to a reprobated mind. That's what's happening. And that's what's happened. 
and it's a little scary. Like it's not a little, it's very scary. And it's and 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 I, and I know I keep saying that, but it scares me as a person who leads groves and groves of people in this generation. It scares me as somebody who tries to act as a moral compass um, in in a city that has a lot of young people. It scares me that we're out of place where we have perverted what is right so much that we model the lay of the sea in church. (sighs) Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be right, rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So Jesus says, he says, look, you think you're rich, but you don't know what wealth is. You're stuck on on these material things and, and all of these things that you need on earth in the physical, but you have not taken a moment to feed your spirit, man. And so your spirit, man, is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And you, you don't understand that this body is not going to be able to take you anywhere beyond this earth. And this earth is just a test. And, and, and even on this test, when we start to talk about the millennial reign, there's, you're going to get a glorified body if you make it to the millennial reign. And so when we start to think about that, he, he says, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Come spend some time with me, Jesus is saying. Come, come, come. You think you know gold. You see that gold that y'all fight over in Africa and y'all have gone over and depleted that country of all of those rubies and all of that stuff. You think you know jewels. But I'm going to show you what real gold looks like. You, I, 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 I impregnated the earth with these things just to give you an idea of what it would look like in the spirit. But what is impregnated in this earth has no, it's nowhere near how deep these things are in the spirit realm. What is on earth is just a representation of what is to come. It's merely a toy in comparison to the beauty of the things that you're going to have in the spirit. And if I can get you to understand what's in the spirit. If you'll come spend time with me in the spirit and get in the word, then maybe you'll understand value. And so he says, I count you to buy me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And he says, and white garments that you may be clothed. And it takes me back to, to um, Adam when Adam sinned and he ate of the fruit and he realized that he was naked. And so then he tried to clothe himself in the figs. And when he tried to clothe himself in the figs, he disconnected um, the life source from the fig to clothe himself. And so both of them were dead in the physical and in the spirit. But he says, I, 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 I urge you to come buy white garments from me. Come spend some time with me because the only way to purity is through me. And so you think that you can go buy some things, you know, we, we've got, they, they've named these different water sources, this, this, this fountain of healing. And so people travel all over the world. They go to up these mountains and they're in searching of, for enlightenment and, and a purity and they want to be made whole and they're thinking that they can get it on earth. And what he's saying is that I own purity. The only way to become pure is that you would come and you would sup with me. I own the white garments. It don't matter how much bleach you buy. It doesn't matter how much stain you get. You can't be made clean unless you come to me and spend time with me. You can't be lukewarm on this. You can't try and you can't try to to sit with me and sit with Buddha. Pick one. 
that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And then anoint your eyes with eyesalve. Now, you remember Laodicea was known for their medicine. They, they were so known for their medicine that it was described by Aristotle. And they were famous for this eyesalve that helped you to see. See, they thought that they could see. They thought they had made this breakthrough in science, but their science had was no comparison to what Jesus did. Now, we know we, he, he sent another comforter or a paraclete or somebody that could leverage some things. He sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, when he says, anoint your eyes with eyes soft, he's talking about the Holy Spirit because they thought they were seeing some things. They thought that they had made breakthroughs, but they, had, they, they didn't even understand they had only broken the surface. And that eyes when he says, anoint your eyes with eyes off, I can show you some things in the spirit, but you can't be lukewarm and get in the spirit. You know, there's a difference between patty cake religion and really tearing with the Lord. There's a difference between God is good, God is great, and sitting there in that room until God decides to touch your soul. You know, at some point we have to decide that we're going to really dig deep and try to understand who God is. Now, sure, our mind has no power to be able to comprehend who he is, but he'll begin to give you nuggets and he'll begin to give you revelation and he'll begin to try to feed you. And as he feeds you, the little bit of revelation will blow your mind and it'll be able to cause you to operate on a different level. You thought you were looking for prosperity or you thought that you had accomplished prosperity here on earth. You don't know prosperity until you tap into the spirit but so many of us are miserable poor blind and naked and we think that we have it figured out and because we think that we've got it figured out he said he's going to spit us out of his mouth now, I don't believe I, I don't want to belong. I don't, I don't I don't think I belong to this church and I hope I don't. I really dig it. Pray to God that I don't. But this is something worth doing an inventory, doing an ultrasound on your heart. Because I've, if you're lukewarm, y'all, and, and this was rough for me because there were there were portions of scripture that I just didn't want to believe to be true. Because it wasn't convenient for my lifestyle. It wasn't convenient for my desires. And so I, I spent out, I spent years, y'all, years trying to disprove portions of scripture or trying to get an understanding that I wanted to match what I needed it to do. That's the problem. That's the problem. But verse 19 kind of sort of gives us a little bit of good news, kind of. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so he's saying all of this. He's fussing. He's, you know, he's really insulting and tearing apart the very core of their culture and who they are as people on different planes, both politically and spiritually and mentally and emotionally, how they are and, and in business and economically and all of these things. He's ripping them apart because they are the same through and through. They are lukewarm. They are not hot nor cold. And he has he's tearing them apart. But he, he reminds him this. I love you. And I'm pulling you, I'm pulling this out and I'm telling you this now because I don't want to leave you here. I, I will, 
But I don't want to leave you here. I want you to get my white garments. I want to give you a crown. I want you to be holy. I want you to be, I want you to have everything that I, I could possibly give you. I want you, I, I love you so much that I died on a cross. I let them pull my beard out of my face. I let them put nails in my hands for you. I love you so much. I desire that you would sup with me. I want you to spend time with me, but you've got to get past all of this stuff so that you can see who I really am. I love you so much. There is nobody in existence that loves you more than I do. This is Jesus. And I don't want to leave you here. I don't want you to be subjected to this reign of Satan. I don't want to cast you into the sea of darkness. I don't want this to be your fate. But if I have to, I'm a just God. And so because I'm just... I will if I have to. And so verse verse 19, it, it strikes me because he's, 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 he's saying all of this because I've torn you up, but because I need you to see that I love you. And because I love you, I've chastened you and I've rebuked you because I need you to turn it on. I need you to be zealous or to be hot. <laughs> I need you to change and to repent because I don't want to leave you here. It's going to get ugly. The stuff that's coming on this earth is going to get ugly. And so I need you to turn around. Man. Verse 20. Now, this is one of the most popular verses in the Bible. If you've ever been to a church service, you've probably heard this verse. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, he with me. Right after he said, I love you and I rebuke you and I chasten you, and, he, and, and, and then he admonishes you this. And I want you to think about this. All the other churches, he, gathers, he gives a corporate call with the exception of Smyrna and, and, and Philadelphia, because they're okay. But he gives a corporate call. He's calling for the whole church to be delivered, but it doesn't seem like there's hope for deliverance for the church at Laodicea. But if he says, if there would be one that would hear me, if you'll turn away, if you'll turn around and get hot and get on fire for me, if you would just turn around, if you'll hear me, if you'll hear what I'm saying to you, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking on the door. I'm standing here. Please hear my voice. I'm knocking on this door. I want to come into your heart and I want to feel you and I want you to do better. I want you to see what wealth could be with me. I want you to see what purity is and I want you to be able to see with the eyes that the Holy Spirit could give you. But you've got to hear my voice and you've got to open that door. And he says, I'll come into him and I'll dine with him and he with me. Now, this particular verse, this was a call to the individual and not the corporate church because it doesn't seem as though we could infer through the text that there is not really hope for the corporate church. And, and that's what bothers me, y'all. <clears throat> but in respect to Laodicea, Christ is on the outside. They are a church in his name, but Christ is not on the inside. Y'all think about that. How many of us go to church just so we can get out soon? 
We go to a specific church because the preacher is quick or he makes us laugh. Not because we have supped with God and we, met, we see the face of God each Sunday or Wednesday. We, we go and we go because the air conditioner is good or they have coffee or I don't have to dress up. And, and, and we, our church culture has bowed to the culture and it is not bowed to our God. And so we have changed who we are and what we are and what he's called us to be out of this idea of comfort. We have become lukewarm as a culture. In respect to Laodicea, Christ is outside of the church. But he's admonishing them. If you'll just hear my voice, I really love you. If you'll hear my voice and you'll change, you'll come to me. I promise you I'll clean you up. I'll make you pure. I'll, I'll give you eyes to see. You, you thought that you'd been walking this worth and you thought that worth, life was worth something. But I'm going to show you worth. I'm going to show you power. I'm going to show you glory. You thought you saw. You thought you built it by yourself. You thought you knew what wealth was. But I'm going to show you, baby. But you've got to hear my voice. And you've got to turn and you've got to change. Because if you don't, I'll leave you here. I don't want to leave you here, but I'll leave you here. And we, I mean, and, and you know, this takes me back to Ruth and Boaz. You think about Ruth and Boaz. You know, Ruth, you know, as much as Boaz did for Ruth, it was a Ruth's call. She had to come to him in the night, ask for a covering. He availed himself. He did all that he could. But at some point, the ball was in her court. Y'all think about that. Think about that. The ball was in her court. He came on the cross. He walked on this earth. He, he was beat. He was bruised. They, they put vinegar on his tongue when he was, when he was thirsty. Uh, they killed him. Uh, he had to borrow a tomb. And then he, he goes to hell, y'all. He goes to hell. He steals the keys. And he rises again. He does all of these things. But the ball is still in our court. We still have to accept him. He's gone through great lengths. He's done the unthinkable. He's gone beyond to infinity and beyond, but the ball is still in our court. We've got to turn. If my people who are called according to my name would turn from their wicked ways and hum would humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll heal their land, their conditions, their conditions. And I think we, we, we've raised this culture to believe that there are not conditions, that God is just this magical uh, genie in the air and he just grants all of stuff and he's so loving and he is so loving. He is so wonderful and he's so majestic, but there are conditions. And at some point, we have to realize and ask this question, what is it worth? Sure, we have fun on this earth. But what I've learned is that sin is only fun when you don't know righteousness. You know, I'm chaste. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, some people know that, some people don't know. I'm chaste. And I told the Lord recently, I told him, I said, you know, that feeling you give me in ministry is better than anything that you could give me that I'm not getting. That the world, and I promise you, y'all, after I preach a sermon and the Holy Spirit has engulfed me, because there's a difference between preaching a sermon where there ain't no Holy Spirit and it's just my intellect and preaching a sermon where the Holy Spirit has taken over. There's a difference. Or di even directing a choir where God has just shown himself faithful. There is a difference. And that feeling for me is enough. 
Yeah, I'm lonely at night. <laughs> Very lonely at night sometimes. But that feeling is better for me. And that's, this is my personal walk. This is my personal testimony than anything that sin could have given me because I've been there. Man. Verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So then that leads me to ask this question, who overcomes? First John 5 uh, verse 4, he says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Y'all, we have to make up in our mind who we're going to serve. Are you going to serve God? Or are you going to serve your desires? Are you going to serve God? Are you going to walk this thing out? Are you going to stand for him? You remember the blessing in, in Philadelphia? One of the, thing that, the things that he, he, he was so proud of them was that they didn't deny him. Are you going to stand for him when nobody else will? Are you going to make it your business to walk holy, to, to, to go places, y'all? I get made fun of all the time because there are things and places that I just can't go because I refuse to taint the reputation of Christ. How far are you willing to go? Because, look, and, and, and this is just my personal opinion. I cannot get left here. <laughs> I'm not interested in getting left here. You know, we're going we're gonna to dig deep, and, and, and after this chapter, we're going to explore the throne room, praise God. But then we're going to see what happens on this earth after he takes his church. And that's, I can't get left here. And I would hope that that would be your desire. But even in, in, in that saying, I can't get left here, I, the best thing that ever happened to me was falling in love with Jesus Christ. Because when I fell in love with Jesus Christ, I got this hope, right? And this hope began to cultivate this thing called patience. And endurance began to get cultivated. And then there are these things called fruits of the spirit. And I learned how to love other people and how to empathize with other people. And then I came to know this thing called joy. And then, and then when I came to learn joy, I came to learn peace. Lord, and y'all know peace flipped my life upside down and changed everything for me. But I had to come to fall in love with this man named Jesus, this guy who sacrificed everything for me. And scripture says he would have done it if I would have been the only person on this earth. How far are you willing to go? He says, who overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Make your declaration. Walk it out. Walk it out. Make, 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 it, make, it, make it bold. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be sitting here talking about the universe has provided and trying to make that seem like that's God. No, you've got... No. You know, I was fussing earlier about <laughs> all these preachers stop saying in Jesus' name because it's not politically correct, y'all. That's, the, that's, that's Satan. The one who overcomes is the one who, who keeps Jesus on his mind. Andre Crouch used to say it, always remember Jesus. 
because you know it's a lot of folks who who acknowledge God because God you know it's easy to acknowledge God and we know that Jesus is God but Jesus is the pathway to God the best way I can explain it to you is Jesus is the stamp that gets you to God and y'all know that your stuff is not going to ship if you hadn't paid your postage well, he paid the postage. You just got to go pick up the stamp. But make up in your mind that you're going to ride this thing out with him. Don't be the church of Laodicea. You got you to gotta pick one. Pick one. And, but I promise you, walking it out with Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. It's paid off for me in, in, in so many different ways. I've seen him move mountains that I didn't even know were possible to be moved. I've watched this faith thing open doors like nobody's business. God has done things and he has protected me. People have tried to destroy me and he caused those op- those that opposition to work out for my good. Walking with Jesus was the best thing I could have ever done. Don't get caught. Don't get left. Well, good folks, this is Bible school. That was the last of the seven churches, seven letters to the seven churches. Next week, we are going to uh, compare the seven letters of the seven churches to Matthew 13. And we're going to draw some other conclusions from the New and Old Testament. And then after that, we are getting into the third portion of Revelation. Y'all, there is there's so many riches planted in this book. And, and the good news here is that there is a blessing to him who studies Revelation. He passed, It's the only book with, with, with a, a blessing to the man who studies. Be sure, be sure you, wanna, you don't want to miss this. Y'all read this Bible. <laughs> you want the cheat code to life, that's it. That's the whole cheat code. You know, the Bible means basic instruction before leaving earth. Don't miss your good thing, all right? Don't miss your good thing. I love y'all. Be blessed.